Welcome back to Arya's Joy. The funny thing about telling a story is that we often set out to tell the tale of one thing. And we end up telling a tale about many things. This is that kind of story. It's a story that started out about one thing. And over the course of telling it, I've realized that it's become a total other thing, taking on a life of its own. It has twists and turns, ups and downs that I never anticipated. Things still surprise me daily. And it's quite the journey, to say the least. So let's just jump back into it. The things I think about most and that are the furthest from my memory are the days and weeks that followed Arya's death. There's a blur of people and places and times and things that I honestly don't remember. Arya's father constantly tells me of things that I said and did that I have absolutely no memory of. I remember very clearly, though, being at home in the moments following the realization that she was gone, laying face down on the floor of the room that would eventually be hers, crying and screaming, and remembering very clearly the thoughts that I had at that time. Thoughts that everything that I'd done to get to that point was now over. How, for some reason, it didn't have a purpose anymore. And I was the only one that really knew what the struggle to get to that point was really like. Because historically, I've been very closed off. My secrets have been my secrets. My struggles have been my struggles. And my demons have indeed been my demons. So when laying face down on that floor and thinking and screaming and standing outside of myself, watching myself do these things I'm brought back to that place especially on days like today when the thoughts creep in and the worries creep in and the anxieties creep in so long before Aria was even a thought I have tussled back and forth with my mental health primarily some scattered depression some anxiety sprinkled in there that just kind of got covered up by the hustle and bustle of things and stuff. There was always something more distracting or more interesting to do rather than focus on fixing my brain. Never mind the fact that I was studying to be a person that fixes other people's brain. What would it look like for me to have a broken brain and still sit in classes with a straight face hoping to eventually repair the brains and minds of others. Well, over the course of nearly a decade, there were so many medications and so many therapists and so many efforts until finally, about five or six years ago, I met a physician that was old as time itself, but he was good. He was really, really good. He was well-versed in old-school psychiatry, new-age psychiatry. He was just 
the best thing I think I'd ever found as it relates to my mental health. And he had me on a regimen of medications that made me almost feel functional. I could get up. I could move through my day. I could be a stellar therapist. I could be like a literal octopus, eight tentacles moving simultaneously in different directions. And it would still look like a beautifully choreographed ballet. It looked like everything was going the way that it should be going. It always looked that way when I'm working. But when I'm not, the times when I'm home or after the voices have stopped and after the problems are solved and after the notes are written and I'm sitting with myself and my thoughts, I'm often led to a place of darkness, loneliness, severe, violent sadness. And so to be in a place where I feel like I'm doing good here, that seemed like a blessing to me. Well, needless to say, when I became pregnant, I had not anticipated what would be required for me to have a healthy pregnancy, to not put my baby at risk. That would mean coming off of some very powerful medications that were keeping me in check. I didn't realize how much they were keeping me in check until I no longer had them to lean on. Arya's dad really described it best when he said that one day I was okay and then a few weeks later I found out I was pregnant and then I wasn't okay anymore. Well, that's true. That's true. Because when you take the brakes off of a car or even the emergency brake fails, everything picks up momentum. Everything looks disastrous. It looks like that once beautifully choreographed dance is now a mass of chaos. And I moved through the next seven and a half, eight months in that chaos. We suffered. We struggled. We tussled back and forth. But the love was there. It never left. It was always there. I can honestly say that He's one of the only men that's ever really seen me as I am. He's seen me in a puddle of mess. He's seen me at my absolute greatest, and he still loved me. And that was the most amazing thing in the world to me. But in the fog of that, not being on medication, flooded with pregnancy hormones, in the fog of that, I stopped seeing everything clearly. I wasn't seeing him clearly. I wasn't seeing me clearly. I wasn't even seeing the fact that my life was really going in a good direction clearly. It seemed like everything was bad. I was uncomfortable. I was huge. I was everything. I was happy, but I had this unexplainable sadness that I hadn't had for a very long time. And that was when I realized how dependent I was on those medications for keeping me in check. So by the time she came along, I was used to riding with the brakes off, so to speak. And so 
when the fears came back in and the the depression came back in, I never considered postpartum depression because it was something that me and my physician talked about at length, even in the early stages of my pregnancy, simply because already suffering with depression increases the risk of having postpartum depression almost 200%. And I had that reality in the back of my mind every day during my pregnancy and even after she came. I didn't want that to be my reality. I wanted to connect with my daughter. I wanted to be present. I wanted to do all the things that postpartum depression robs you of. Now imagine having postpartum depression and your child just died. How do you reconcile still producing breast milk? Still waking up every two, three hours because someone should be screaming at you. How do you reconcile the flood of post-pregnancy hormones and emotions that are still there, but you have no baby? The mix of grief and postpartum depression and perinatal prior to my pregnancy, mood issues, reconciling all of those things were crucial in the first days and weeks that followed. And I can honestly say I struggled. It was a crawl, most of the time being pushed, but it was definitely a crawl. And in the beginning, I tried really, really hard to hold on to God. But as time has gone on, I find myself further and further away from him. Like he's almost a distant memory. And that's a really lonely life to live. I wonder sometimes about people that live in the world and have absolutely nothing to believe in. They believe that humanity, their humanity, is the beginning and the end of the universe. Someone like them clapped their hands and all that is the world, all that is the universe came to be. I can't imagine living a life like that. So I've always understood the spiritual nature of life. And I was able to connect that with God because I've had a very strong religious basis in my life. So connecting that with God was no issue. But what happens when we stop experiencing the goodness of God and we feel like we are stuck smack dab in his wrath? in the wrath that they don't very often talk about in church and in spiritual circles and in all things that is Jesus Christ superstar. How do you dig yourself from the muck that is God's wrath? Couple that with still trying to function and fight, not feeling like you have the capacity or the ability, or even the luxury at times, to fall apart. Falling apart in the midst of something like this is absolutely necessary. Because the longer you stay together, the harder it'll be 
to fix it. It's like having a broken limb. If I broke my leg when I was five and I didn't get it fixed, I just let it heal broken because it didn't seem like it was so bad. If I break it again at 12, it'll have to be rebroken in order to heal correctly because I didn't address it when I was four. And now that I'm 12, I have compound pain because I didn't fix it when it was originally broken. That's the state that I find myself in during this leg of the marathon. I'm re-breaking limbs, re-breaking my heart, re-breaking my mind because it wasn't healed correctly to start. I remember for a very long time thereafter she first passed away, I had the most violent night terrors. And for those that don't know, night terrors and nightmares are very different. Nightmares are in a lot of ways very passive. It's almost like observing a movie while you're asleep. So observing a horror movie while you're asleep, that will be the essence of a nightmare. A night terror is actively participating in that nightmare and with all of your being believing that you are awake, believing that whatever it is you're running from or hiding from is literally about to end your life. There's sleep paralysis. There are effects related to sleeping and waking. In a night terror, it's like that moment where you're awake and you tell someone to pinch me so that I know I'm awake. You do that constantly in your sleep because you know that it's not real and you're aware that it's not real, but you can't wake up. So for months and months and months, there were nights and nights and nights of that. And I know I drove Ari's father absolutely crazy with it because he wasn't in my dreams. He didn't know what was in my head. He wasn't running from those things and struggling to wake up like I was. I tossed, I turned, I fought, I talked, I screamed. It was just a really, really bad time sleep-wise. So when you can't get a break when you're awake and you can't get a break when you're asleep, you start to fear both. You try so hard not to fall asleep that you stop sleeping. There were days at a time that I would go without sleep. Days would overlap because the thought of closing my eyes was so utterly traumatizing that I couldn't fathom it. Never mind the fact that I still blamed my exhaustion for my daughter's death. She was sleeping. I fell prey to my exhaustion for one hour. One hour, that's all I had. And she was gone. So sleep to me became the enemy. Sleep was the thing that put me into the place where I am. And so sleep was the thing that we did not want. Even to this day, if I don't do some heavy-duty medicating, 
there will be days and days that I don't sleep. And I don't feel tired. I don't feel exhaustion. I'm just not tired. I cannot close my eyes. And as unhealthy as that seems, and unhealthy as it feels, that's the truth. That's the truth and the reality of trauma and grief. And there are people that will say, what was traumatizing about that? Well, it's not just the the fact that she passed away. And I've contemplated this with several different parties. How I would feel if I had not tried to save her. When I realized that she was not joking, not, not kidding around with me, playing possum, not wanting to wake up. When I realized that, I immediately, without a thought, started baby CPR on her. And in that moment, I was thinking, my God, I wish I had paid more attention in those CPR classes. Am I doing this right? Am I going to save her? What is going on? I don't know. And needless to say, I failed. I did not save her. And I wonder, I wonder many times, if I had not tried to take her back from death, would I be as traumatized as I am? I don't have an answer, but I do have some education about PTSD. So what I've learned about PTSD personally and professionally is that it is a past, present, and future event. Why do I say it's a past, present, and future event? It's a past event because your body, your mind, and your heart are reacting to dangers and fears that are clearly in the past. My body is right here in the present, but it's reacting as if it's right back there at that moment, waking up, realizing that she's not breathing. My body is back there. My mind is back there. So why is it a present experience? It's a present experience because in actuality, my body is right here and my body is experiencing this thing right here. It's actually here in front of me going on right now even though I'm reacting with that fight or flight in the past why is it a future event the anxiety about what will come next will this happen again what will my future be now that this is my present trauma is past present and future tense there is no separating them from one another Those are some of the hardest lessons to teach clients about trauma, about PTSD, about uh, acute stress of any kind. That it is a total tense experience. There's no separating the past from the present and the present from the future when you are experiencing it. So you have to step into each tense independently and sort through what it means in each reality for you to struggle with whatever it is that you're struggling with. What does it mean for me to wrestle with a demon in the past? What does it mean for me to wrestle with a demon in the present? What will it look like for me to wrestle this very same demon in the future? What will I do differently? What do I hope to learn that I can carry forward so that I don't continue to experience what's happening in the present and in the past.
So I tried some therapies that I didn't necessarily believe in as a clinician. And I won't name them because there are people that need to believe in certain therapies. Otherwise, they won't try anything. But I will say some of the more new-aged therapies were less than effective for me, likely because, one, I'm a clinician as well, and two, above all, I'm a very practical, logical person. And when it comes to ideas of the mind and things that are produced by the mind, logic and reason don't really have a, a place in that. The mind isn't even an actual um, physiological structure. It's, it's a construct that we've come up with. It was birthed from the soul, which no one has ever seen. So the soul, the mind, they operate in the same sort of abyss that's very abstract. It's no one thing for everybody. So the things and and the therapies that were supposed to help with the trauma, they helped exponentially. But a lot of what helped was just experiencing it. The trauma or the re-traumatization happens when we stop trying to allow them to happen when you try to stop a feeling in its mid way point you're not experiencing it and it's just gonna start over it's an amazing thing to be a human being and our bodies are so amazing and and that just makes me wonder how people can believe that there is no god because no one but god could make something So utterly confusing, be so beautiful and so synchronized, moving together. But then comes the times when they're not moving together. Moving parts are going in three, four, five, six different directions. And it's not that dance anymore. It's not that beautifully choreographed dance at all. It's mass chaos. It's violent, shaking, crying spells. It's uncontrollable agitation, anger, violence, often towards oneself. I found myself first self-isolating. And then I started to notice that people stopped wanting to be around me. And for a while, I didn't blame them. I still don't blame them. Because to be exposed to my life is to be exposed to my pain. They are forever and inextricably bound to one another. I felt in a lot of ways like a disease, like a pestilence, worse than COVID. I'm contagious. The pain is contagious. That's not an idea that I've completely let go of either. But I've noticed that the isolation that I feel is more of a separation from the person that I was as compared to the person that I am. I thought the person that I was was screwy. 
But sitting where I am today, I would give just about anything to have her issues rather than my own. Because her issues were such that there was still room for hope. The loss of a child does many, many things. But robbing you of the hope of the future is one very, very large loss. One very, very large change. The future that you saw for yourself, for that child, for your family, is no longer there. The school plays, the graduations, the extracurriculars, the games, the proms, the college, the driving, those things are no longer there. And they'll never be there again, not for that child. And it's the release of that hope that makes this particular circle of hell what I believe to be one of the worst. There's so much more to be told and so much more to explore. So I hope you will continue to walk this journey with me. See you soon.